Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel and I'm here with author, broadcaster, physician and journalist Dr. Norman Swan to talk about his book, So You Think You Know What's Good For You. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure, Joel. Um, this is such an interesting book. It, felt, it feels like it's, it should just be a, an almost like a reference guide. But actually, having sat down to read it, it's really engaging. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think the original intent was it would be a bit of a re- reference guide, but I wasn't particularly interested in writing that. You yeah. know, there's not much fun in writing that. And so this is, it's actually part memoir. There's a little bit of a memoir in there, and, um, and it's a narrative. I mean, I just enjoy telling stories, and a lot of this is about telling stories. And it's idiosyncratic. It's stuff that interests me, but also I know interests other people. So it's questions I've been asked over the years, and people, things that people are confused about. And I think, well, you don't actually need to be confused about it. And when I give them their answer, so it's not an FAQ. There's no questions and answers in it. But it's, I know it's the topics that people are interested in. Absolutely. I think it's the first time I've ever felt like I understood. I'm not sure it's going to be durable information, but I feel like I understand antioxidants for the first time in my life. Good. I'll, I'll examine you later. <laughs> multi-choice question here. Yeah. Um, so uh, the title is wonderful. How did that come about? Well, it's actually the title of a series of seminars, I suppose. Well, not really seminars. I've given a lot of talks to actually the millennial age group over the years. So this book's far more than just for millennials, but they, uh, they shouldn't use the word just there, but for millennials. But it's uh, sessions that where I go and give a talk and... Millennials, in particular, are very health engaged. They they, they know they you know they, they're worried about their food, they're worried about their sleep, they're worried about their exercise, and so on. But they've got lots of intelligent questions to ask, and so it's, I started off giving talks when I was doing these same sessions, and then I decided, well, stop. I'll just take the questions without notice, and I've taken a, a note of that, and we called it. So you think you know what's good for you. And which is really about people are confident they know that how much sleep they should have. They're confident they know which supplements they should have, but they're not really. Should I have low carb, high carb? Should I have high protein? Should I be on uh, antioxidant supplements? Should I in exercise do HIT or should I just do 40 minutes uh, five days a week? Um, do I really need seven or eight hours sleep again at night? I'm only getting five hours. Am I going to get dementia? There's so many things that people feel anxious about they actually don't need to be anxious about. Mm. And I think it's an interesting... <clears throat> it's interesting that you've just, this book has come out on the, hopefully the tail end of this awful pandemic. Um, how much pressure did you feel to address that? This is going to be quite... I think this book is going to sell for many years to come, hopefully long after we're not well, caring so much about it. There's almost nothing about COVID in the book. Yeah. So for me, this was occupational therapy. I wrote this during <laughs> the first year of COVID. I wish I could be as optimistic as you that it's over quickly. But no, this this was, I, I didn't want to write a book that was anything about COVID. It's, it's really the result of many decades covering health for a general audience. And uh, I've kind of avoided writing a book up until now, but I thought now's the time. Now's the time. Even if it was just for me to, <laughs> to get out of COVID for a few hours a day. Oh, well, I, I appreciated that personally as a person who reads lots of nonfiction books. Uh, there have been so many COVID books over the past yeah. six months. I had the you know, January 2020, I thought, well, I'll write a COVID book. And um, my agent said, don't. There's going to be 400 of them. Michael Lewis is going to write one. And sure, sure enough, yes, he did. He did. Um, and, you know, we decided we'd do something else. 
Yeah, I think that was a smart move. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you're wanting COVID, don't buy this book. <laughs> Any, anyone who really wants to find out about COVID, they're better off reading. Yeah, just tune into anyway. Coronacast. Yeah, you know. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I quite like. The, you, do you think you can sum up your sort of philosophy of health in a in a simple way um, that you approach the book, or is it sort of more ad hoc? No, it's not ad hoc at all. <laughs> so, so. My approach to health is be wary of bullshit. <laughs> if it's too good to be true in health, it is too good to be true. Um, there are lots of things that get you to an advanced age, still quite youthful, and it's a package of stuff. So life is a package of stuff. And if you're looking for the thing in, the bottle, in a bottle on the pharmacy shelf that's going to do it for you, well, it's not. But it, it's so life is a package, and you uh, and you've got to understand what's in that package. So the example I use of that, and it's not the only example, but the example I've used of that is Greek Australians, um, and it's a section called uh, "Forget the French." The paradox is Greek. You know, and you know the, the French paradox is you know people smoke chitin and eat butter croissant and they live forever. Um, but really, and that's the paradox. But, and in fact, it's not true because French don't smoke that much, actually, and they don't eat that much saturated fat. So they actually live quite a healthy life. But no, the Greek paradox is that um, you, you have people who, who are first-generation migrants usually, and they live a long time. You know, they're amongst the longest-lived Australians and some of the longest-lived people in the world. And what is it? Well, people say, well, it's the Mediterranean diet, isn't it? Well, that's only a small part of what goes into the package that... Um, that Greek Australians have. So first of all, they're very social. So they've got family and friends around. So being social is really important for a long, healthy life because you get support from people. And, and I suppose actually just backing up a little bit, if you're talking about a philosophy, is don't ever believe somebody who gives you the idea that the mind is separate from the body. The mind and body are one. So how you feel, how you react to the world around you affects your body. And what goes on in your body in terms of what you eat, how you eat, that affects your brain. So we are a single body, an organism, and that's what counts. So if you look at the Greek Australians, they're very social. Yes, they eat a, a Mediterranean diet. But if you look at what makes up a Mediterranean diet, people say, well, I could eat all these vegetables raw. But in fact, it's the cuisine. It's not just the fact that you eat lots of vegetables and you don't eat much red meat. It's actually how you cook. And, and what happens when you cook is you release far more potent antioxidants than you can ever buy in a bottle and things that have yet to be discovered. So when you cook onions with garlic and tomatoes and carrots um, in, a, in a mixture with fresh herbs, because that's the other thing. Greek Australians, particularly in Melbourne, but other parts of Australia, they have a backyard and they're growing their own fresh vegetables often and their own herbs. So whatever goodness is in them, and there is a lot of goodness in them, it's fresh and it's straight into the pot and it's cooked, very rarely eaten raw. And um, those add a lot to the chemistry set, which is, a, which is your cuisine. And um, so it's herbs, it's spices, and it's everything else. And there's just something, and, and then they've returned to religion, or if they ever departed from it. And the Greek Orthodox Church, if you follow it strictly, has 100 fast days a year. 
Now, these aren't Michael Mosley fast days. <laughs> these are vegan fast days where they don't eat meat, fish, chicken. They only eat vegetables for a day. And they have, you know, it's almost like one day in three. So you add all that up, and it's very hard to separate it out as to what is working. It's the package of stuff. Mm-hmm. So you say, well, I'm not, so, so am I going to have that sort of thing? Well, of course not. But cook your food, cook healthily, follow the recipes, have your food as fresh as possible. It doesn't have to be organic, as fresh as possible. Eat with friends. Uh, eat slowly. Cook slowly, because cooking slowly makes a difference. That's part of the Mediterranean cuisine. If you eat food that's been burnt or barbecued heavily or caramelized, that is actually pro-oxidant. That, that speeds up aging. Slow cooking slows it down. So there's all sorts of things that go on there. So my point is, it's a package of stuff. I think that really appeal, it definitely appeals to me, this idea that you can't necessarily disentangle these, these concepts. And I feel like most of the modern fad diets, which some of which I have tried, <laughs> are, are like that. They take one aspect of, of, of health or a healthy diet and, and they magnify it and they make it simple. Like to make it simple to follow and understand what you're doing. That's right. H.L. Mencken a... <laughs> said, who's an American satirist, about 100 years ago, and I'm going to get this wrong, but roughly what he said was, for every complicated problem, there's a simple solution, which is always wrong. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and that's, if you like, if you want any simple solutions, again, don't buy this book. Go and buy the Paleolithic Diet. Just yeah. when you buy a Paleolithic Diet book, just remember that people in the Stone Age died around about the age of 28. So, you know, be careful what you wish for. Absolutely. Well, that's a good example of, uh, of, of bullshit, basically. This idea that if it's old, it must be good, that somehow humans knew what they were doing. And I think the Greek, the Greek diet, sort of Mediterranean diet that you talk about, I was astounded to learn in the book that that's actually not even an old no. diet. So, you know, just what do you think, you know, what do you think is the commonest fruit or vegetable, vegetable, I should say, in a... I never remember the tomatoes that is. Uh, but but tomato, you, think tomato, you think tomatoes are core yeah, to a Mediterranean diet. Tomatoes are a new world fruit, uh, vegetable. Yeah. And uh, so they, they've only been around for a few hundred years in, in our diet. So yes, the Mediterranean diet is relatively new. It just happens, lucked out. You know, I grew up Jewish. The Jewish traditional diet is extremely unhealthy. Mm. And so a traditional diet, you know, the traditional Indian diet is extremely unhealthy. Uh, but it's particularly unhealthy in relation to our lifestyle. So if you take, say, for example, the traditional Jewish diet, a lot of fat, a lot of carbohydrate, um, you, you know, you, you, you've got to release three buttons on your pants before you get up. And the Indian diet's the same with a lot of ghee and so on. And you think, well, how did that ever survive? Well, it survived, and I use the example of the Amish. You know, those traditional people who live in Lancaster County and Canada and so on, who live a traditional middle-aged lifestyle, middle um, Medieval lifestyle. It's not quite medieval, but um, is that they expend five or six thousand calories a day. They they don't go in cars. They build everything for themselves. They walk a lot, and therefore they can cope with what to our eyes looks like an incredibly unhealthy diet, because um, they're eating a middle ages diet in a sense in in the Amish communities, but. They're not getting a lot of diabetes. They're not getting a lot of heart disease because they're doing a vast amount of exercise. Mm. We're not, and therefore we're those traditional diets like the Indian or like the Jewish diet and so on, the old European diets, don't suit us well when we're not moving around a lot. Mm. 
yeah, I, I, you're not getting gout in the, <laughs> that's that's what I worry about if I ate if I ate a traditional uh, the traditional the diet of my yes. family. <laughs> yes. um, the I think one of the interesting things in your book is how you address sort of motivation and the sort of you 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 don't clearly necessarily articulate a single reason to do to do any of this, you know? No, no, and that's, and I, I was very determined about that. This is, what, what I'm doing, even when I talk about drugs like ice, not being judgmental, just know the facts. And right at the top of the book, at the beginning of the book, I say, look, this is just about understanding what you want to achieve, setting your expectations. And what I'll give you at various points in this book is the facts to make up your own mind about what you want to do. Um, it's up to you. And so if you decide, so for example, if you take people who go to the gym, most people who are at the gym are not there because they want to stave off heart disease. They're there because they want to body sculpt. Mm. You know, I know about all that body sculpting. You know, I've spent a lifetime trying to get a six pack, you know, and I can't get beyond a Pinot Noir. Um, <laughs> so the, um, so you, you've got to know what you want. So if you want a body sculpt, um, you know, gay men, for example, um, there, there, there's really quite an unhealthy concentration on body image amongst gay men. Very low body fat and very muscular, spend a lot of time in the gym, which is fine. As long as you know what you're doing and you don't actually move into an eating disorder and, and so on. So there, there are things that you can choose which are better than not. But I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to show you the facts and you make up your own mind about it. Mm. Now, as a, a doctor and a health educator and journalist, you you know you present all this information to the reader, but you yourself admit that you know you don't always follow the rules. First yourself. rule of medicine <laughs> is do as I say, but not as I do. <laughs> yeah. So, what role do you think this type of knowledge plays in motivation and persuasion? Um, people are desperate to know, to have trustworthy information. So the one thing I've learned over the years, and it's particularly been emphasized during COVID, but I knew it well beforehand in my journalistic career, is trust is one of the most important words that people hold tight to themselves. And in this world of multiplicity of sources of information where you can Google and you don't know whether you're going to a reliable site, it's really important to people that they know who and what to trust. And that gives people security. And so what I've spent a lifetime doing is giving people trustworthy information. And they can choose not to take it or not, but that's up to them. So trust, I think, gives people secure, secure, you know, security in making their decisions. They can choose to reject it, of course. And you know, not many people have a backyard anymore to be able to grow their own herbs or be able to choose that. But when you go to Woolies, you can buy fresh herbs now in a pot if you chose if you chose to do it, for example. So I think, and the, and the other, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about a concept called control. And it comes back to this mind-body thing, that the mind and the body are one, is that if you do nothing else in your life, is if you're feeling stressed, chronically stressed, you're feeling put upon, you're feeling you're not able to make decisions about your life and yourself, forget diet, forget the Mediterranean diet, forget about the exercise, work out what's going on there because that chronic toxic stress is extremely bad for you. 
It affects, and you know, you think, well, this is all in my mind. It's not all in your mind. It's all in your body. It affects your hormones. It affects how your immune system works. It affects your cardiovascular system, and has such a, and and also demotivates you. It's very hard when you're feeling chronically stressed, either because of work, or because of a family situation, or because you're on a single parent's pension with three kids to bring up. Um, that chronic stress has to be dealt with if you are able to do so, and then other things flow. You're not going to be able to decide that I'm going to start cooking five nights a week, a, a, a week, or I've got to go out and meet friends when you're not in that position. So this notion of control is incredibly important and not easy to solve, but um, worth addressing. Mm. It's an incredibly humane answer. I'm very... Uh much more humane, I think, than a lot of the other sort of gurus that <laughs> write this type of... Well, if people think I'm a guru. I've, I've failed <laughs> in this guru. book. I've failed in the book. <laughs> um, that's really interesting. Um, now, you, you describe... You have a, a couple of fantastic sort of metaphors in, in the book as you write. Um, I particularly liked the, describing the immune system as, as the mob. <laughs> Where does that sort of thing come from in your writing? Do you, is that just that just happens as you write, or is it something you intentionally set out to come up with um, a way of communicating something like that? When so, my career has been mostly in radio. Um, I've always done a fair bit of television, but my my home is radio. And when you um, are and and I've been communicating complicated things to an audience over radio. And when you do that, you think very hard about metaphors, analogy, visual images that you can put in people's minds to explain something. So I've spent a long, long time thinking up ways to explain certain phenomena that will click in people's imagination. So it's relatively easy on television. You get the graphic artist to describe a cell or how things work. But you've actually got to fire up the person's mind, their imagination as they listen to you. So I've just over the years developed, I've thought hard about it. Um, there was another, when I joined the ABC Science Unit many years ago, there was um, Australia's, really one of Australia's first environmental journalists, Peter Hunt, who sadly died very young. And we, do, we used to go out for coffee and we would work with each other on, on metaphors and visual images that we would work on for stories and we'd go through each other's script. So I spent a lot of my early life in radio thinking through those sorts of things. Yeah, and obviously road testing the ones that, yeah. that stick. Well, you, with radio, you never know whether people get it or not yeah, because they're out there in silent. Yeah, very. it's, it's fascinating. It, was a, it, it is such an easy book to read and, it, and you do make very complicated ideas, very uh, comprehensible, but without, I've, I felt, not without compromising on the reason why they're right. And I try and tell personal stories which illustrate the point as well, mm. some of which are quite embarrassing. <laughs> is there, is there a, a, a single thing you would like uh, readers to, to take away from uh, either the book or, or more well, importantly, I like to take before, away they the book. Read, before they read the book, is there something you would like to tell them? Um, uh, I mean, I would just say just go and buy the book because it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I think that um, luckily there isn't a one-liner for the book that saves you <laughs> buying it. Um, no, no, it, look, buy the book There's because there are lots of things in it that you would want to know about. 
So because it started off with millennials, I had to write about sex. So everything, so I write a lot of anecdotes, a lot of memoirs. There are none, of, just to spoil it for you, there are no anecdotes about <laughs> sex in, in the book. And, um, and uh, you know, so sex, drugs and rock and roll, as well as everything else you want to know about in terms of eating, drinking. And, uh, you know, I trained in pediatrics and I, um, you know, the, the temptation was to write a lot about kids. But really I focused on, on things that I know that parents are worried about with kids, particularly screens and screen time and their children. That's one of the big sections in the book. So essentially we're circling back to where you began this conversation about mm. being a reference book. There's just there's lots of stories and things you want to know about that you will return to again and again, thinking, well, what did I say about screens and what's the message there? And that little bit about sex, maybe I should just quietly go into another room and have a look at it there in the sealed section. And actually, seriously, there's no sealed section. Yeah, I find it uh, impossible to believe that um, anyone coming across this book wouldn't find something yeah. in there. And there is a section helpful. on vegetables and sex, but <laughs> it's not what you think. <laughs> um, thank you so much for spending the time to talk to me about the book. I highly recommend that um, if you are at all interested, you should go and check out the book. Uh, you can buy So You Think You Know What's Good For You from booktopia.com.au or from your local bookshop. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, John. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget... You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.